Well, if you please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 19 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 917. So last week, we looked at probably the most dramatic and the most important conversion in all of church history. The conversion on the road to Damascus of Saul of Tarsus, also known as the Apostle Paul. And during the sermon, I'm going to use that interact, interchangeably. Saul and Paul, same person. And Saul was armed with letters from the high priest. And these letters were addressed to the synagogues at Damascus. And it was authorizing him to arrest all members of the church. And what he did is he planned to continue the terror. The terror that he began in Jerusalem, he was going to continue this in Damascus. And his final goal, the final goal of Saul of Tarsus was the eradication of all Christians in all places. But God had a different plan for Saul. God got Saul's attention on the road to Damascus. He saw this light brighter than the sun, and it blinded him. And the Lord himself said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Jesus sent Saul to Damascus to await further instructions. And we're told that Saul waited there for three days. And during which time he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So today we pick up right where we left off in verse 10. So Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately... Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this account. Lord, we thank you for your faithful servant, Ananias. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us, your Holy Spirit will be with me, that I will speak your word with your power. Lord, give me clarity. Open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that we will be changed by this encounter with you, that each one of us here will see you, will know you, will love you more. Each one of us will conform more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. So as we just read this passage about Ananias and his encounter with Saul, you may, like me, wonder, what is his purpose? What is his purpose? I mean, Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. It was there that he had this encounter with the risen Lord. It was here that he met Jesus. It was here that God got Saul's attention. And Saul submitted 
to Christ. He recognized the error of his ways, the error of his persecuting the church. And from this point on, Saul's life would never be the same. So the same zeal that Saul showed in persecuting Christians, now, now he would be used to proclaim the name of Christ. Saul would go from the, the greatest enemy of the church to its greatest proponent. And this radical change in, in Saul's life, this new calling, it came from Christ. It came from Christ alone. And it was empowered by Christ, empowered by Christ alone. And if this is the case, which it is, then what is the purpose for this visit that we read in this passage by Ananias? Well, here we see a, a very important principle. And it's one that's not only true for Paul, but it's true for every single person that the Lord calls into ministry. It applies to every single Christian, really, because each one of us, every Christian, whether we are full-time ministry or in a secular vocation, each one of us is called to be a witness for Christ. We are to witness of what Christ's done for us and the hope that we have into him. So this applies to every single one of us. And the principle is this, that we see here, is that when God calls us to a particular ministry or a particular way that we are to serve him, he gives us both an internal call and an external call. And both of these calls, both of these calls come from Christ, and both of these calls are always in alignment. So the internal call, this is a direct encounter that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us not only to salvation, not only to follow him, but he also shows us the unique way. And each person, each follower of Christ has a unique way that we are to serve him. Now, for the vast majority of us, it will not be as dramatic as the road to Damascus encounter that Saul had with Christ. Although for some, and I know people personally who had that, it was that dramatic. But for most of us, we'll, we'll, we'll feel a, a clear connection with Christ. We will have a desire to serve him. Uh, serve him in a specific capacity. And it may be a prayer burden that he puts on us, that he places on it. It may be a desire to go to a specific place and share about Christ, share the gospel. It may be a burning desire for a loved one, a loved one that they would know Christ and to show them that what Christ has, has done for us, someone that, that, that God has put in our place. And maybe for a specific ministry, ministry here in town. We have people who serve at the Anchorage, people who serve at the Salvation Army, people who serve at the Alpha Pregnancy Center. It may be that. It may be the Gideons. It may even be called to pastoral ministry, to preaching the word. And this is an internal call. It's an internal burden that the Lord puts upon our lives. It comes from him. We feel it. But God does not only give us an internal call. The internal call is always confirmed. It is always confirmed with an external call. And the external call, just like the internal call, originates with Christ. But unlike the internal call, the external call is not given to us directly by Christ, but is given to us by Christ through others. Through others. It's often given through the church, or given through a ministry, or given through other brothers and sisters who the Lord recognizes the Lord's work, who they recognize the Lord's work in your life, and they confirm it through this outward call, external call. Let me, let me give you my, my own personal situation. Shortly after my conversion, I was converted in my mid-20s. Shortly after my conversion, I felt that I was called to ministry, that I was going to be a pastor. Now, at that time, I didn't even know where to start. I didn't, I didn't personally know any ministers. As those of you who know my testimony, I was converted actually through Christian radio. I wasn't in a church. I didn't know other believers. I didn't know other, other pastors, and I didn't have the background or the education 
to go into ministry. <clears throat> it's interesting, the only Greek I knew as, a, as an engineer was the, those little symbols and the math equations that I learned in, in engineering school. So this was, this was completely foreign to me. And to tell the truth, it seemed like an impossible dream. It seemed like an impossible dream to ever be a pastor. I was on this path. I had a family. I had, I had expenses to be able to go to seminary, to be able to, to become a pastor. It, it just didn't seem like it was going to happen. But this call continued to persist. It persisted for years. And I would be given opportunities throughout those years to test my calling in, in different situations. And some of the first ones were, were very humble, such as shoveling, shoveling snow. That was like my first ministry, shoveling snow outside the small little church that we were attending. Or cleaning the church. They didn't even, they weren't able to hire someone to clean the church. So the members of the church would take turns and we would go in. And I remember Lynn and I in there polishing the pews with the Murphy's oil soap. And, and I was in heaven. I was like, this is awesome. I get to shovel snow for God. I loved it. I, I, I couldn't think of anything better. And this is what God was calling to me. This is, what, this is what I felt. I felt so close to him as I was serving him. And gradually I would get more and, and, and more opportunities would come. Opportunities to teach. And they started off with teaching children. I remember teaching people and working in the, in the nursery. I had opportunities to, to lead Bible studies and, and to, to preach in a nursing home. And, and every, every month, Jessica and I would go over to the, to the nursing home. Jessica would play the same songs on the piano. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing when I survey the wondrous cross and amazing grace. Every week we would sing the same, or every month we would do the same. And then I would preach a sermon for about 15 minutes and over the snores of the residents. But I loved it. It's not much different than I do. I just preach a little longer. And I preach louder over the snores that I hear. But I loved it. This was, this was what God was calling me to do. This was the internal call. Now, this internal call was confirmed in many ways. It was confirmed by the increasing opportunities that I had, that I had to, to exercise and develop my gifts. But it was also confirmed by, <clears throat> by people, people I knew and people I didn't know. One situation I remember, our family was in Richmond, Virginia. Jessica was competing in a voice competition. We were on the campus of Virginia Commonwealth University, and we were just walking around, and we see a, a, a street preacher. Street preacher there, a man about my age, black man about my age, and he was coming around praying with people. And he came up to us, and he wanted to pray with us. We said, sure, pray with us. And he starts praying, he's praying with us, and then he stops right in the middle, and he looks directly at me. He goes, you're a preacher man. I was, I was like, shuck, I hadn't said a word to him. And he said, I can see you're a preacher man. And then he gave me a big hug. Again, I didn't say a word, I was, I was shocked. Another time, we had some friends over for dinner. They went to a different church. These friends were more, more Pentecostal. We, we knew them. They, uh, they had a, a son in, in uh, Sarah's class at school, and, and their daughter played on the volleyball team with Sarah. These were good people. And during dinner, I could see that they were uncomfortable. They, they wanted to say something, but they didn't know what they wanted to say. And I'm worried. Oh, man, what, what do we do to offend them? What, what are they going to confront us with at, at some time? And as, as they're at dinner, they're looking at each other, and they look nervous, like, should they say something? And then finally, the wife says something like, she says, you're going to think I'm crazy. She said, but the Lord told me to tell you, you're supposed to be a pastor. At this point, I was working at Radford University. I was an I was IT manager at the, at, at the time. But what they didn't know is I was struggling with that job. I didn't feel like that was my calling. I, I was miserable. And Lynn and I had been actually talking about me going to seminary, but we couldn't figure out the timing. We couldn't figure out the details. But this person coming, and this person didn't know any of that. But they just told us, the Lord said, you're supposed to be a pastor. And this blew us away. 
And the confirmation just continued. I, I talked with my pastor, and he confirmed it. I went to my session, and they confirmed put me under care of the session. Then I went to the presbytery, the presbytery confirmed and put me under care there. And all this was to confirm this inner call that I had. And the final confirmation of this inner call, the final outward call, had been after I'd finished seminary, before I could be ordained. It came actually from here, from Northgate Presbyterian Church. You all had to call me to be your pastor. Without that, I couldn't even have been ordained. And this is what we see here with Ananias. Ananias is giving this external call, this outward call to the Apostle Paul. And it's clear as we look at the text that both of these calls, they originate with Christ. Right? This is not Ananias' idea. Right? This is the, the further, if you were to ask Ananias, who is the person you think is going to be the great apostle? It certainly would be Saul of Tarsus. Not at all. The Lord came to him, had a direct calling. And he told him to go and anoint Saul. And this confirmation is different than what we see in other places in Acts. Remember the selection that we read a couple of weeks ago of the deacons in Acts chapter 6? These men were, were chosen by God, and I'm sure each of them felt this internal call, but I doubt any of them had this direct encounter like on the, on the road to Damascus and, and, and that we see with Saul. And these deacons, they were confirmed, they were given their external call through their nomination and through the election by the congregation. And finally, they were ordained by the laying on of hands of the apostles. And there's no mention that these church leaders, these apostles, had a vision from Jesus saying, specifically, go and choose out these men. No, but I believe they were being led by the Holy Spirit. So I believe the calling, both the internal and the external calling, of these seven deacons, this was just as much as the calling of any of the officers, of Jack or Mike or John or, or Nathan or, or Travis. I believe that we have the same call. It originates with Christ. It originates just as much as the, the call to the, on the road to Damascus. But it's different. That's the, no, that's the normal way that things go. So why this difference? Why do we see this difference with Paul? It's because Paul wasn't called to be a deacon. Paul wasn't called to be an elder. Paul wasn't called to be a pastor. Paul was called to be an apostle. An apostle is a unique role in the church. The apostles, they are the foundation of the New Testament church. These are the men who were commissioned directly by Christ himself to be Christ's ambassadors, to be his representatives. In the office of apostle, this is not a permanent office. This is a temporary office. In the testimony of the apostles, this is what has been recorded down in Scripture. And this is the foundation of the church. See, Christ is the, the cornerstone. We, we sing a song, Christ is the one foundation. But actually, Scripture tells us that the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. But Christ is the cornerstone. It's even more primary than the foundation. So Christ is, is the cornerstone of the, of the church. But we no longer need the apostles. And the reason is because we have their testimony already. Their testimony is for us in Scripture. We have the Scripture. We have the words of the apostles now. Now that is our foundation. So the normative way that God issues both his internal and external call is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working through the church, guided by Scripture, guided by providence. Same way I was called, same way all these elders and, and, and deacons are called. But notice that Ananias here is different. Ananias is different. He's not an apostle. God did not send Peter, did not send uh, John to lay hands on Saul, but he sent Ananias. And here where we see Ananias is acting differently than an apostle. He's acting actually more like an Old Testament prophet. If you look at the way Ananias is called and the way he acts, it looks more like Samuel, we see, in the Old Testament, Samuel's called to anoint King David. 
And I think there's a clear purpose for this. See, by using Ananias, Ananias the prophet, to appoint Paul as an apostle, rather than using another apostle, rather than using John or, or, or Peter or any of the other apostles, what this does is this signals for us that Paul is of equal authority of the other apostles. See, Paul was ordained, uh, if he was ordained by, say, Peter or John, he would be considered subordinate to them. He, his, his ministry would be dependent on them. And we clearly see this in the epistle from the Galatians, uh, from the book of uh, Galatians, chapter 1, that uh, Nathan read for us earlier. See, Paul is clear saying that his authority does not come from man. It does not come from the other apostles. It comes directly from Christ. And this is particularly important because you remember in the book of Galatians, Paul is actually confronting Peter, the chief of the apostles, for an error. So if he was subordinate to him, he would not be able to, to confront him. So this is the authority. This is the reason why I think Paul is, is, is ordained, is confirmed differently than we see others. But this authority that Paul has, this no longer exists. We can no longer, um, we can no longer confront the apostles. Now, the apostles aren't here, but we have their writings. We can no longer say, well, I don't believe what, uh, what Peter wrote in this uh, uh, book is, is applicable, what Paul wrote. You know, Romans 9, I don't, I don't like that. We're just going to pull, pull that out. And I know there are people who would like to, to pull that out. But we don't have that authority. You see, in the, in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, we have a book of church order. And that book church order specifies how we run our church. We have the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms known as the Westminster Standards. And what this does is this articulates the way we understand theology, biblical doctrine, what the scriptures teach. And these standards, they make up the constitution of our church. Now, as a pastor and as, as church officers, we are bound by these documents. I can't choose to ignore them. This is actually the whole reason why we were having a congregational meeting afterwards. We want to call on a, an associate pastor. We have to have a, we have a process to go through it's laid out for us in the book of church order. We cannot, we cannot uh, uh, ignore it. Likewise, I cannot preach doctrine contrary to what's articulated in the Westminster Confession. Westminster Confession says something specific. I can't go without, outside of that. I am bound by that. But however, not as an individual pastor, but as a denomination. If we collectively, if we believe that the book of church order or the Westminster standards are an error, or they need to be revised, we actually have a process in place to do it. It's a difficult process. We have our general assembly where the whole denomination gets together, and we can vote to make this change. And that, but that's not all of it. We then have to go to each of the presbyteries. There's, I think, 88 presbyteries in our denomination, and each one of them has to ratify it. We have to have, I think it's two-thirds ratify that. And then again, it goes back to the general assembly, and we have to vote again. So it's, it's actually a pretty complicated process. But there is a process in place. But regardless of what the church believes, even if 100% of us believed that the Romans 9 should no longer be in there, we do not have the authority. We do not have the authority to challenge the teachings of the apostles. We do not have the authority to change Scripture. That is concrete. That is the Word of God. Peter had that ability. Peter had the ability to tell, or Paul had the ability to tell Peter is wrong. We do not. We cannot say that. See, Scripture is the Word of God. It is eternal. It is unchanging. And it is our final authority. So all this, this is really all background. This is all background. This is the answer to the question of why Ananias was needed. See, Ananias was the prophet that was given the mission, given the mission directly by Christ to provide this outward call to, to, that confirms the inward call that Christ gave directly 
to Paul on the road to Damascus. This was his purpose, to confirm that call. And this is an extremely important assignment that the Lord gives to Ananias. But it's also an extremely difficult assignment. It's a difficult, and I want us to, to put ourselves in Ananias' position. I want you to think, just, just think back, if you were Ananias and, and the Lord came to you and he gave you this assignment, how would you feel about this assignment? Now, Ananias was a faithful man. He sought to, to obey the Lord. He wants to do the Lord's will. He, he, we see this in the very first verse, in, in, in verse 10 of this passage, when the Lord calls him in, in a vision. He says, Ananias. And how does Ananias respond? He says, here I am, Lord. Now, Ananias is not telling the Lord his location. He's not saying, here I am, Lord, as, as saying, you know, I'm right here. I'm right in front of you. No. Ananias says, here I am, Lord, waiting for your instructions. I am ready here to do your will. He's like, like a servant who's called, when you, when you call a servant, he says, here I am. I'm ready to do your will, ready and willing to do your will. And this is what Ananias is doing. He's ready to receive orders from his Lord. But these orders are not what he expects. I mean, he wanted to be used by God. We all, we all want to be used by God until, until we actually get the assignment. See, often we want, to, we want the Lord to tell us uh, what we already want to do. But we're not happy. We're not happy if, if the Lord gives us an assignment that's completely contrary to what we want to do. And I think this is how Ananias must have felt. Because this is what Ananias heard. Look at his assignment given in verses 11 and 12. It says, the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and to the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, <clears throat> and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. I mean, I could just picture Ananias here. He's like, wait a minute, Lord. Did, did, did I hear you right? Do you know who this man is that you told me to go to? Do you know what you're asking me to do? Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever asked the Lord to show you what he wants you to do or how he wants you to serve him? And when he does, you say, well, hold on a second. That's, that's not what I was expecting. That's not what I want to do. And I think this was Ananias must have felt with this difficult assignment that he's been given. And I think there are three obstacles here that we face and, and three obstacles that Ananias faced in this difficult assignment. And these obstacles are first, fear, second, anger, and third, pride. So fear, anger, and pride. We're going to look at each of these in turn. So let's start with fear. See, Ananias had much to fear. Ananias knew who Saul was. He knew what Saul had done. And he knew what Saul was planning to do. He knew his reputation. In verse 13, Ananias mentions that there were many. He heard from many others about Saul, about the evil that he had done in Jerusalem. And now look at verse 14. Verse 14 starts, and here. And here, where's here? Here's Damascus. Here is where Ananias lives. This is his home. This is where his family lives. This is where his friends and all the people he loves are here in Damascus. And here, here Saul has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon the name of the Lord. And Ananias knows that Saul is a very dangerous man. Saul's a murderer. Saul hates Christians. And to make it worse, Saul has authority. He has the government, the power of Rome behind him to imprison Christians. Ananias, like any, any sane man, any sane Christian, would, <clears throat> would seek to stay as far away from Saul as possible. Let me give you a, a, a modern local context, and even this is, falls far short. 
What if you felt like the Lord gave you a call to go to East Albany at night to an area where you know that there's gang activity going on and witness to Christ? Not going with a group, not going with a church, just you alone going there. And even this is not that bad because to the gang, you're not really an enemy of them. You might at best be a, a crime of opportunity. But that's not what, what Saul was. Saul was immediately, uh, Ananias was an enemy. It was someone that Saul was going against. Saul was actively going after people just like Ananias. And there's real danger in, in this assignment. I knew a man years ago who was serving as a missionary in Kenya. And he told me he found himself in the middle of a gunfight between two rival Islamic warlords. And he's right in the middle, and he said he's walking. Bullets are whizzing by his head as he's going. He goes right up to one of the warlords, and he warns him. He says, if you die now, you will go to hell. And he shares the gospel. Again, bullets are whizzing by him. He shares the gospel. And this warlord is, is saved. He's, he's brought to Christ and serves Christ. And what faith. What courage. See, the reality is, we may not be called to, 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 to go to gun battles. We may not call to lay hands on someone who wants to murder us. But the reality is, every single one of us will be called by the Lord outside of our comfort zone. And sometimes he will call us to things that will terrify us. And they may be physical, but they may not. They may be social. The Lord may call you to, to share the gospel with someone who's going to terrify you. A, a, a co-worker, a boss. A neighbor. And we're afraid that if we do this, things will not go well for us. We may be hated. We may get fired. I heard a story about an actor. He was working on a movie set. And he felt led to, to go up to this A-list Hollywood actor. You'd recognize the name if I mentioned it. And to share the gospel with him. And the man didn't say much. He said, okay. But it was before the guy got back to his trailer, he was escorted by, by, by security off the set and fired immediately. That's what happens. There is, there is a real danger to being a Christian. And fear is a real obstacle to our obedience to the Lord's difficult assignment. But even if Ananias had nerves of steel, even if he was braver than most of us, there's a second obstacle that he needs to overcome. And the second obstacle, it's closely related to the first obstacle. It's related to fear. And the second obstacle is anger. Anger. Take a look again at verse 13. It says, but Ananias answered, he said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. See, the reality is that Saul did much evil. Stephen, a godly, spirit-filled man, was dead. Was dead because of Saul. There was much pain and suffering experienced by dear brothers and sisters of Ananias because of Saul, because of his hatred. It would be very hard. If I was in that situation, it would be very hard for me to forgive Saul for what he had done. See, it's easy for us, again, 2,000 years later, to, to sweep it all under the rug. But put yourself in Ananias' place. He may have personally known, Ananias may have personally known people who were killed or people whose lives were turned upside down because of Saul. There is a strong desire to see justice done, to see these, these wrongs made right. I remember a couple of years ago, it was probably about three, four years ago, Nazi hunters, they had tracked down a former concentration camp guard this man at the time was in his mid-90s. He was sick. He was, he was dying. But they found him. They arrested him. He was tried. He was convicted. And he was sentenced to jail. Again, the man is in his 90s. He probably wouldn't even be able to survive the first day in jail. He was committed of a crime that, was, that he committed over 70 years earlier. You see the strong desire 
for justice. Along those same lines, you may have heard this example. This is relatively well-known. It's by uh, former concentration camp uh, um, Christian author, uh, Corey Ten Boon. And she tells about a time after the war, shortly after the war, she was speaking in Germany, and she was sharing her testimony. And after she was done speaking, a whole bunch of people who were listening, they lined up to speak with her and to shake her hands. And as she was there, she saw a man who was a former guard in the same camp that she was in. And immediately she said all the memories flooded back. She remembered this man. She remembered how he, would, how he was standing over the prisoners, the prisoners who, who are naked and, and starving and not doing anything, not doing anything to help. And all that hatred came back toward in, in her, even though she was, she was a Christian, she was speaking at a Christian conference. And she, and she said that as she went up to the man, it took all of her, all of she had of her will to raise her hand, to, to shake his hand. But when she did it, as soon as she touched him, she said every ounce of hatred, every ounce of, 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 of anger just drained out of her, all the bitterness drained out of her. And she was filled with, with compassion immediately and filled with love for this man. And they both began to weep, and they, they hugged each other. The man profusely apologized for his, and asked for her forgiveness, and she forgave him. And this is the power of Christ. This is the power of Christ. See, Christ alone can, can transform this anger and hatred, can transform it into love and compassion. And I believe this is the same thing that happened to Ananias. See, when Ananias lays his hands on Saul, I think the Lord took away all of all of his anger, all of his fear, all of his bitterness. Take a look at the way that Ananias addresses Saul in verse 17. He says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, this is not a term of fear. This is not a term of, of anger or hatred. This is a, a term of endearment. Ananias has accepted Saul as his brother, as his fellow laborer in the kingdom of God. All the fear, all the anger that had, had been morphed into love and brotherly affection toward Brother Saul. <clears throat> and I think this is one of the most powerful and one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. See, not only do we have peace and reconciliation with God through the atoning death of, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we also have peace and reconciliation with each other. See, because not only are my sins fully punished in Christ, but so are my enemies. So are my enemies' sins. The, the, the sins that he has committed against me are fully punished in Christ. And now there's no hostility. No hostility. Just as there's no hostility between me and God, there's no hostility between me and my brother. The debt has been paid. The wall of hostility between God and man has been torn down. And the wall of hostility between man and man, between enemies, has been torn down. See, I cannot hold. I cannot hold the, the sins against my brother against him because they have been paid for with the blood of Christ. I must look at my brother in Christ, regardless of their past sins, even regardless of sins that they may still continually struggle, knowing that those sins, even the sins they continue to struggle with, are covered by the blood of Christ. And I must see them as God sees them, as perfectly righteous, as righteous as Christ himself. So fear and anger, they, they're, they're strong, strong obstacles to keep Ananias and, and to keep us from obeying a difficult, difficult assignment from the Lord. And we see the Lord addresses both of these in, in verses 15 and 16. Starting verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So knowing that Saul has been 
redeemed. Knowing that Saul is a new creation in Christ. Ananias no longer needs to fear Saul. Saul would, would never again persecute his brothers and sisters. And knowing that Saul's sins, just like Ananias' sins, have been punished on the cross in Christ, there can be complete, complete forgiveness of the pain and the hurt that these former sins had caused to Ananias and to his loved ones. But there's still one more obstacle to this difficult assignment. And that obstacle is pride. Again, put yourself in Ananias' position. See, he can truly be rejoicing the fact of, of Saul's conversion. He may no longer fear Saul. He could be completely forgiven him from all of his previous sins against the church. But look at the calling that's revealed to Ananias concerning Saul. Again, verse 15. Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Well, that's some honor, is it not? Chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's basically everyone. Now, Ananias, he has been faithful. He's been faithfully serving the Lord. Others in Damascus have been faithfully serving the Lord. And none of them, none of them are given the same honor. They're not called to be God's chosen instruments to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the kings and to the children of Israel. In fact, solely based on the scope of his effectiveness, Saul's calling is even greater than that of Peter or John or any of the other apostles. Based on the, the overall gross impact, the apostle Paul had the most impact on the Christian church of any person other than Jesus Christ himself in all of church history. And friends, this is quite a privilege that's given to Paul, this former persecutor of the church. And think about it again, if you, were, if you were Ananias, does this seem fair? I know, I know if I was Ananias, I'd be thinking, what about me? What about me? What about using me? How are you going to use me? Why are you using him? I'm glad that he's saved. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's no longer trying to kill us. But Lord, did you have to make him the head honcho? Couldn't he just been a run-of-the-mill Christian? See, we never hear about Ananias anymore other than this one incident in Scripture. In fact, most people confuse him with the other man named Ananias that we read about with Ananias and Sapphira, the unfaithful man in chapter 5. And for me, this, I think, would have been the most difficult part of the assignment for Ananias. See, I'd want to be the one the Lord uses to do great things. If I were Ananias, after Paul left, I, I would have felt like, why'd you put me on the sidelines, Lord? Why don't you need me anymore? And this is the way, this is the way I would feel. I, I admit it. I confess this. But I don't think this is the way Ananias felt. I suspect Ananias was much more spiritually mature than I am. See, Ananias realized that to whom much is given, much is required. So where I'm quick to see all the, the opportunities and the glories described in verse 15, I think a wise person, a spiritually mature person, would realize that there's an inseparable link between verses 15 and 16. Yes, Paul would make a great impact for the kingdom of God, but that impact would come at a great personal cost. Paul would suffer greatly for the name of Christ. And this is another principle I think we need to grasp. And that is that great spiritual opportunities often come at a great cost, a great personal cost of personal suffering. And we see this not just in Paul, but we see this throughout church history. One of my personal heroes of the faith, probably the greatest preacher of all time, at least of all time in English, was the 18th century revivalist preacher, George Whitfield. And if you know anything about Whitfield, Whitfield almost literally died, preached to his dying breath. See, Whitfield was, 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 was preaching multiple times a day for, for years on end, and, and he, his body was fading, and, and he, he was failing. 
And he, he, he was near death. And he came to this one house and he preached all day. He had dinner. And as he was going up to go to bed, there were people gathered outside and wanted to hear him preach. So he goes out with this little candle and he preaches until the candle completely runs down. And then he runs out of candle. He goes in to, to bed and he dies in his sleep. And as a preacher, I can't think of any better way to go. Preaching to your dying breath. Now the bad news is, though, the bad news is Whitfield was only 55 years old when this happened. That's my age. My friends, I want to preach to my dying breath, but not at 55. I want to be 95 or 105, but not at 55. See, Whitfield was, was actually blessed to preach over 18,000 sermons. Think about that, 18,000 sermons. He preached to millions of people. Just to put this in perspective, say that he started preaching at 20 years old, and he preached for 35 years straight till he died at 55. That's nearly 10 sermons a week, 52 weeks a year for 35 years with no breaks. I had one week a few years ago because of various way things lined up. I actually had to preach five times in one week. I can tell you that nearly killed me. And he's preaching twice as much, not just for one week. That's all I did. I've been eight years. One week I had five times. He's preaching ten times a week for 35 years straight. And this took a heavy, heavy toll on his body. That's why he died at 55. His body just ran out. And the truth is, the Christian life is a difficult assignment. And we may think other people, we may think other people have it easier. Other people get more glory. But my friends, this is not true. Each one of us has difficulties. We can't see the difficulties. Oftentimes we see the glory. We don't see the difficulties. Often we cannot see the trials and the sufferings that others have. And here's really our final application. Don't envy another person's call. Don't envy an assignment that the Lord has given to others. Simply be faithful to what he has called us to do. That's it. Whatever he's called you to do, be faithful. Do what he has called you to do. And take comfort of the fact as I, as I shared with the kids about that thing that's over my, that, that sign that's over my mantelpiece, my fireplace. The will of God will not call you to a place where the grace of God will not protect you. And this may not necessarily be physical protection, but more importantly, what this is is eternal protection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know each of us is given hard callings, difficult callings, uh, things that it, it seems impossible for us to do. Just like the calling that you've given to Ananias. Father, I pray that you will confirm our callings, that you will give us the grace to overcome the fear that we will have, overcome the anger, overcome the pride, and seek to be faithful to what you have given us to do. You alone to get all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.